Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Intact Financial Corp. Q3 2021 Results Conference Call. At this time, all lines are in a listen-only mode, and following the presentation, we will conduct a question-and-answer session. If at any time during this call you require immediate assistance, please press star zero for the operator. I would like to remind everybody that this call is being recorded today, Wednesday, November the 10th, 2021, and I would now like to turn the conference over to Mr. Ken Anderson, Executive Vice President of Corporate Development and Investor Relations. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Michelle. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining the call today. A link to our live webcast and published information for this call is posted on our website at intactfc.com under the Investors tab. As usual, before we start, please refer to slide two for cautionary language regarding the use of forward-looking statements, which form part of this morning's remarks, and slide three for a note on the use of non-IFRS financial measures, an important note on adjustments, terms, and definitions used in this presentation. With me today, we have our CEO, Charles Brindamore, our CFO, Louis Marcotte, Isabel Gerard, SVP of Personal Lines, Patrick Barbeau, EVP and Chief Operating Officer, and Darren Godfrey, EVP of Global Specialty Lines. We'll begin with prepared remarks, followed by Q&A. I'll turn the call to Charles. Well, thanks, Ken. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. As society continues to navigate the shift from a pandemic to an endemic disease, at Intact, we remain focused on being there for customers in both good and bad times, protecting our employees in an evolving work environment, and helping to build a resilient society that can grow and prosper. Our ability to do all this is largely due to the momentum in our business and the resilient and strong performance we continue to deliver. This last quarter was no exception. Yesterday evening, we announced third quarter net operating income per share of $2.87, a 3% increase over Q3 last year, driven by strong underwriting and distribution results with upper single digit accretion from the RSA acquisition. With our operations performing really well, a strong balance sheet and a favorable outlook for capital generation we're pleased to increase our quarterly dividend by 10% to $0.91, cents, continuing our 16-year track record of annual increases. Top-line growth of 68% was obviously driven by the acquisition of RSA, but with approximately seven points of organic growth reflecting strength in commercial lines across all geographies. The overall combined ratio is solid at 91.3% despite including 7.5 points of cat losses, double the expected level. Following several severe weather events in the quarter, our teams moved quickly 
to get our customers back on track. Now let's look at our results by line of business, starting uh, with Canada. So in first lotto, premiums grew 27% year over year with 1% organic growth. The combined ratio was again strong at 85.1%. Our personal auto business is solid and it's well positioned to operate at the lower end of mid 90s as we integrate RSA. Looking at the industry, we expect muted premium growth in the near term until driving patterns return to pre-pandemic norms. In personal prop, premiums grew 34%. Organic growth was healthy at 5%, driven by firm market conditions, which we expect to continue given the challenges that weather and climate change present. The combined ratio of 93.5% is right in line with our view that this segment should operate sub-95, even with severe weather. In commercial lines, premiums grew 33% in the quarter, including eight points of organic growth. The 91.2 combined ratio was strong, reflecting our profitability actions over time. Looking at the industry, we see hard market conditions continuing. Our Canadian commercial lines business is well positioned to deliver low 90s or better performance going forward. Moving to our UK and I business, the first full quarter added 1.3 billion of premiums to our platform, in line with our expectations. The combined ratio of 93.9 was solid and included 10.3 points of cat losses, approximately six points above expectations. First lines with a 97.9% combined ratio is clearly an area of focus for the team we already have action plans in place. In commercial lines, the 90.5% combined ratio was strong. Overall, the UKNI business is in a good position and we're focused on building sustainable outperformance. Looking at the industry, we see softness in personal lines in the UK ahead of reforms next year, while the commercial lines environment is hard. In our US commercial business, premiums grew a very strong 21% in the quarter with hard market conditions and solid new business contributing. The combined ratio at 92.8% was solid, uh, despite including four points of cats. This business has very good momentum and the US team is executing on its objective to deliver sustainable low 90s performance. Turning to our RSA acquisition, which we closed in June, the integration and transition are on track across the board. In Canada, nearly all of our RSA colleagues have been onboarded into our HR platform. There is strong traction and engagement with the brokers and affinity partners, which further solidifies our outlook on volume retention. Policy conversions in Canada are well underway and we're on track to begin to shut down systems in 2023. We're also integrating our claims operations and leveraging our supply chain capabilities to deliver a strong customer experience while realizing synergies. In the UK and I segment, it's all about building out performance. There are three near-term areas we're focused on. First, for personal lines, we've already launched initiatives to increase pricing sophistication and to be ready to compete as pricing reforms come into effect in 2022. 
Second, in commercial lines, it's about growing in the segments where RSA has already a sound and high-performing offer. It's about building on our strength. A great example is the mid-market in the UK. At the same time, we're tightening our focus in areas where the economics are not stacked in our favor. And the third area we're looking at in the UK is to simplify the business operating model and the technology platform to increase agility and help deliver on our outperformance. On global specialty lines, there's been strong collaboration and engagement across regions. Impacts onboarding into RSA's global network has commenced, which brings in-house the ability to support global customers. Finally, we're spending considerable time assessing the potential capabilities for global franchises and have identified opportunities to leverage our expanded scale and expertise to drive meaningful outperformance. Alongside the RSA integration, our teams continue to advance our strategic roadmap. Distribution earnings have become a significant contributor to our raw performance and growth, with EBITDA compounding at over 20% over the last five years. We expect the momentum to continue in 2022 and as we continue to build scale in Canada. In August, BrokerLink acquired Archway Insurance and South Coast Insurance, doubling our size in Atlantic Canada and becoming one of the leading East Coast brokers. In our direct business, Belair Direct has evolved our offer to create a simplified insurance experience for customers by reducing the number of products, forms, and rules by over 50% in the last two years. Our coverage is now easier to understand and coupled with the improvements to our apps, drive digital engagement, yields, a better customer experience, and has driven our industry leading direct distribution expense ratio to below 20%. The significant CATS experience in this quarter act as a reminder that our customers are facing the devastating impacts of climate change right now. Globally, the last decade was hotter than any period in the past 125,000 years, and Canada's heating at twice the global average. Society's collective efforts to transition to net zero carbon emissions are critically important. At the same time, we must double down on adapting to the current extreme weather impacts of climate change. And this requires an approach that includes government, NGOs, businesses, and individuals. And in fact, we've invested in community efforts to help get critical projects off the ground, including through our significant investments in the Impact Center on Climate Adaptation. Our investment team recently joined Climate Engagement Canada, an initiative that drives dialogue between the financial community and corporate issuers on climate change risks and opportunities. And we're taking important steps to transition our own business to net zero. These clear actions will ensure that we can help society better protect our customers and win in the marketplace. In support of this, I've just wrapped up a few days at COP26, the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Scotland, as a member of the Canadian delegation. And it's our goal to help build a clear roadmap to future-proof society. In conclusion, momentum across the business is very strong and the RSA acquisition has significantly advanced our strategic roadmap on all fronts. 
our ability to deliver strong results, react quickly when weather events happen, and make strong progress on the RSA integration and our broader strategic agenda would not be possible without our people. And I want to thank them for their continued engagement and collaboration. As we set our sights on 2022 and beyond, we have a clear focus on what we want to achieve, and that is to provide second-to-none customer experience with an engaged workforce and to continue to deliver on our financial objectives to grow net operating income per share 10% annually over time and to outperform the industry ROE by 500 basis points every single year. And with that, I'll turn the call over to our CFO, Louis Marcotte. Thanks, Charles, and good morning, everyone. We delivered solid results again this quarter, despite heavy cat losses, well above our expectations for a third quarter. I'm very pleased with the performance of all of our operations, delivering a 91.3 combined ratio and net operating income per share of $2.87. These results include RSA's Canadian and UK&I operations, and as expected, the acquisition was immediately accretive, contributing 8% to our Q3 net operating income per share. Underwriting income grew 15% to $426 million, compared to a very strong Q3 last year, as robust performances across all segments continue to reflect the benefits of our actions over time. As expected, prior year development was healthy at 2.6% of opening reserves. We continue to expect favorable PYD in the 1% to 3% range in the long term, but at the upper end of this range in the short term. Net investment income of $191 million increased by 34% year-over-year, driven by the addition of RSA's investment portfolio. We expect a similar level of net investment income in Q4. Distribution EBITDA and other income continued to outperform our expectations, growing an impressive 30% in the quarter, driven by higher variable commissions as well as solid organic and M&A growth. Keep in mind that these earnings are partly offsetting the elevated variable commissions in our Canadian expense ratio. Looking ahead, we expect growth for the fourth quarter to be in the mid-teens following a strong Q4 last year. For 2022, we expect EBITDA to surpass the $400 million mark on the back of continued momentum in the business. Looking at underwriting results in a little more detail, First, the Canadian segment. In personal auto, the underlying loss ratio of 62.5% remains strong, slightly increasing in the quarter to reflect an uptick in driving activity. Our telematics data suggests that kilometers driven are nearing pre-pandemic levels, but claims frequency remains below historical averages. Favorable prior year development was healthy at 4.7%, reflecting reduced uncertainty around claims patterns during the pandemic. In personal property, the 93.5% combined ratio reflected 17 points of CATS, which is 10 points higher than expected. This was offset by a weather-driven 4.4-point improvement in the underlying loss ratio and higher favorable prior year development. Looking at commercial lines, High single-digit organic growth is driven by rate momentum in what continues to be hard market conditions. 
The underlying loss ratio of 50.6% was very strong as the benefits of our profitability actions continue. The overall expense ratio in Canada increased 2.2 points to 32%, largely driven by a high level of variable commissions following continued strong underwriting performance. The addition of RSA had a positive impact on the expense ratio, thanks to a higher proportion of direct business and the benefit of synergies. Overall, our Canadian business performed very well despite heavy CAD losses. The addition of RSA's Canadian segment had a slightly positive impact on the combined ratio in the quarter. We saw solid performances in personal lines, while commercial lines saw a fair bit of non-weather-related CAT losses. In the U.S., our business is doing very well, both from a top and bottom line perspective. Rate momentum continues to be strong in favorable market conditions. Our 93% combined ratio after nine months is aligned with our low 90s expectations after considering excess CAT losses. Turning to the UK and I, I'm pleased with the first full quarter of results. If we normalize the reported combined ratio for excess CATs, we are ahead of expectations thanks to benign non-CAT weather and fewer large losses. It remains early innings, and although it has only been one quarter, we like what we see thus far. We expect this business to run sub-95 in the near to midterm. IFC's earnings per share for the quarter was down close to 30% due to RSA-related integration costs, as well as the partial sale of shares and impairment losses related to a venture investment that IPO'd in Q1 of this year. After considering the $273 million gain recorded in Q1 and realized losses and impairments this quarter, we are left with a net gain of $69 million on this investment. Our remaining position in the stock today is minimal. As we near the one-year anniversary of the announcement of the RSA acquisition, our view of the financial merits of the transaction remains very compelling. We delivered high single-digit accretion after four months against a strong standalone performance of IFC. We delivered $24 million in earned synergies year-to-date and are tracking towards an $85 million run rate by the end of 2021. I'm confident we can beat our $250 million target within 36 months, and this is without reflecting any risk selection improvements to the loss ratio. And finally, we've agreed to an exit of the Danish business on favorable terms. When considering all of these elements, we see the IRR of the RSA transaction tracking near 20% above our initial calculation. Moving to our balance sheet, it's been a busy quarter. Our teams have been working hard to combine our asset portfolios, migrate the asset allocation towards our optimal mix, and at the same time, capture opportunities in the market. We have also been successful at refinancing of some of the UK capital instruments into Canadian debt instruments with positive impact on our financing costs and capital structure. Finally, we have de-risked our our Canadian pension plans by purchasing annuities representing approximately a quarter of the total Canadian pension obligations. Our financial position continues to be strong. We close the quarter with approximately $2.7 billion in total capital margin, a healthy buffer to absorb potential shocks, reflecting strong regulated capital ratios in all jurisdictions. Our debt-to-total capital ratio was just below 24% at the end of the quarter. 
Most of the proceeds from the sale of Kodan Denmark will be used for deleveraging. The remainder will be used for growth opportunities or buybacks as per our well-established capital management framework. We expect to reach our debt-to-total capital ratio target of 20%, well ahead of the initial objective of 36 months. The strength of our results over the past year has led to an operating ROE of 18.3%. With the acquisition of RSA and their progressive return to normalcy, we expect our operating ROE to migrate towards a mid-teens level. Given the pace of earnings growth, further bolstered by RSA's earnings and synergies and the strength of our balance sheet, we have increased our dividends by 10% this quarter, and we expect to resume our usual dividend increase announcement at the Q4 earnings release in February 2022. As society cautiously moves towards a post-pandemic new normal, our priority remains delivering on our strategic roadmap. With the RSA integration well on track and strong earnings momentum supported by favorable market conditions, we are well positioned to emerge from this pandemic with continued strength and outperformance. Together with RSA, we have a highly resilient platform with significant growth potential and I am confident in our ability to continue to create value for our shareholders. With that, I'll give it back to Ken. Thank you, Louis. In order to give everyone a chance to participate in the Q&A, we would ask that you kindly limit yourselves to two questions per person. Of course, if there's time at the end, you can certainly requeue for follow-ups. So, Michelle, we're now ready to take questions. Thank you, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now begin the question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question, please press the star followed by the one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, please press the star followed by the two. Please stand by for your first question. Your first question comes from Paul Holden of CIBC. Please go ahead. Thank you. Uh, good morning. So want to ask first off, maybe you can dissect a little bit more the trends for personal auto just in terms of uh, frequency and severity. And I guess there's some particular concerns around severity trends uh, for the industry. So maybe you can address that and how you're thinking about that uh, going forward. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. I think that's, uh, that's an important uh, question. Uh, you know, driving is, is definitely, uh, you know, very close to normal, if not at normal. Patterns of driving, though, are different. Uh, maybe I can ask Isabel to share her perspective on what we're, we're seeing from, you know, a driving point of view and, to a certain extent, you know, frequency. But I think more importantly, maybe Patrick can give us perspective on what we're seeing uh, from a severity point of view uh, in claims. We've been on that for, for years, as you know, um, and, uh, and Patrick will provide his perspective. But Isabel, why don't you uh, kick this up? Sure. So in terms of driving and frequency, uh, driving stays close to about 5% below historical average for a few weeks now. But we still see fluctuations week over week and one region versus the other. Uh, frequency is also still below pre-pandemic level, uh, but it has been at its highest uh, since the start of the pandemic entering into September. 
So uh, we're following all, a lot of mobility indicators, both internally and externally, and all those indicators are showing consistently higher driving in 2021 versus 2020. What we see also is that return to the office, weekdays congestion, especially the morning rush hour, and public transit indicators are steadily increasing since the end of the summer, but we see it's taking a bit longer than anticipated to return to the pre-pandemic levels. And we believe that's what is explaining in part why frequency is still below historical levels, even if the driving is, is pretty close. As people continue to return to the office in the coming months, we expect the driving activity to continue to rise uh, and we'll be following that very proactively to adapt our strategy. So that's what we see in terms Thank of- you. Yeah, thanks Isabel. Uh, so uh, Patrick, I mean, we've been observing inflation and personal automobile for some time. Why don't you share with us what you're seeing now and, uh, and what was there before maybe? Great. Yeah, so on the severity side, uh, it's important to take into account, as you pointed out, uh, uh, shall some mitigating actions that we've been taking, as well as some offsetting factors that we currently observe in the supply chain. So, um, so in severity, first of all, it's important to mention that on the injury side, we see no, no severity increase there. Uh, and this is reflective of our prudent approach in reserving since the start of the pandemic. On the short tail line, so the physical damage, we do see a 5% increase in severity when we compare Q3 this year versus same period last year. And it's driven by two main factors. The first one, um, Isabel talked about the driving habits that uh, create uh, less concentration of driving in the rush hours, especially in the morning. That's, that creates proportionately um, more severe accidents. So we, there's less of the small bumper claims in the mix and that in itself is driving about three points of that five, uh, overall 5% 5 increase in severity. The remaining 2% continues to be uh, driven by the technology in cars. Uh, so when we say that, we mean that uh, the parts are costing a bit, uh, are higher, but also the complexity of the repair process that is, uh, that's created more cost. We've, we've identified that uh, at least three years ago, and I've started to implement uh, mitigating factors in the way we handle the claims as well as in, as in pricing. You know, th there's a lot of uh, indicators on the price of new and used cars, uh, and we see as well here in Canada double-digit inflation on market values on, on these cars and even higher figures in the 20s for some makes and models. But this is where we have some important offsetting factors. This has very limited impact currently on our uh, severity, uh, the severity of our, of our claims. Because you know, when, when a car is declared total loss, which is when we have to replace the car by a new one or used car, we sell the damaged car for the parts. And we've seen significant increases there in the recoveries. So net-net on the total loss, when I look at Q3, the total loss severity is actually slightly down in Q3 this year versus last year. So we're, we're reflecting these trends in our actions. We continue to leverage the tools that we have to mitigate some of it. And, and this is why when we look forward, we say this business is well positioned to operate in the lower part of the mid-90s on a go-forward basis. Thank you.
Thanks, uh, Patrick. That worked for you, Paul? It does. It does. It's very, very helpful. So, I mean, partly given that answer, what I want to ask is a bigger picture question. So, Louis just said that your expectation is for the ROE to migrate back down into the mid-teens, which has been your longstanding target. But I would ask today, given increased scale advantages, the investments you've highlighted that you've made in the business over time to increase your competitive moat, and then just more favorable earnings mix, I would argue, over time. Like, why isn't that our objective pushing to something a little bit higher? Yeah, Paul, the objective is to outperform the industry's ROE by at least 500 basis points every year. Uh, We've built out clearly our leadership position in Canada and, and the strengths we've invested in, namely pricing, risk selection, claims, supply chain management, for the past couple of decades uh, are driving the outperformance. Keep in mind, you know, we're building a business in the U.S., and I think the U.S. team has done a great job uh, to create outperformance over a four-year horizon, and I'm very pleased with the trajectory there. But I think in the U.K., you know, we need to build outperformance. Uh, And as such, you know, when I think about about the objective, um, there's a lot of momentum in the organization, no doubt about it. We've invested in our strengths. The sandbox in which we're operating is bigger and uh, we need to, to create out performance across the platform and that's what we're, uh, we're focused on. Uh, Louis, I don't know if you wanna provide additional uh, color here, but you know, not going to guide towards, um, yeah, uh, a point estimate, but Louis? Yeah, maybe uh, I think if you listen to the guidance in terms of long-term expectations for the combined ratios as we get back to normalcy, that generates, that tends to migrate towards the mid-teens ROE, so that's consistent. I think we're trying to uh, guide everyone here into into the the guiding or the gliding of our ROE towards that mid-teens level compared to where it is today. Um, And the other dimension we need to keep in mind is the NOIBS growth objective as well. Uh, so we got to balance a bit the two here, and um, I, I think the mid-teens target that we're aiming for uh, is consistent with the NOIBS growth target that we're trying to achieve as well. Okay, fair enough. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Your next question comes from Jeff Kwan of RBC. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, you know, you've, you've had this dynamic now where the pandemics helps the claims ratio and that in turn has increased your expense uh, ratio from the higher variable commission, and which has also resulted in higher distribution income. And, and so my question is, is, is relative to the pre-pandemic levels, like what has been the net impact on the ROE from these different variables? Thanks, Jeff. Well, first of all, the expense ratio is up, uh, uh, you know, not down because of uh, variable commission. That's the first point I would make. I think that, you know, as you think through what we've done in the pandemic and you you go back to March 2020, when the pandemic started, we put in place right at that moment um, a relief program that was risk-based and needs-based and provided our customers close to 650 million bucks 
of relief uh, effort. You know, a big portion of that has been earned already. You know, and, and uh, beyond some of the relief, you know, provided um, rate adjustments where where appropriate. Again, based on a risk uh, on and uh, on a need basis. It's also important, Jeff, to keep in mind that uh, we've put up in commercial lines north of $100 million of reserves for pandemics. So, you know, in balance um, at this stage, if you take a long-term perspective, the, the net benefit is, is there's no real uh, major net benefit uh, here, given the relief we've provided, given the impact uh, that um, the commercial lines uh, cost uh, of COVID uh, has been and some of the rate adjustments that have been put in place. Louis, I don't know if you want to provide additional color on this front. Uh, well, I would say the, uh, the variable commissions are up, uh, but keep in mind they're, they're a bit sharing some of the, uh, the benefits we have from the better combined ratios, uh, and then we get some of it back through distribution. So the net effect of the higher CPCs is, is largely offset by the distribution income, and then it leaves a net benefit uh, of just a better performance net to us, and that's positive to the ROE, it's clear. We have not necessarily tried to match the exact ROE benefit with, with that dynamic, uh, but given the, the strong combined ratios we've delivered, despite higher CPCs, uh, that's positive, and then we capture the, the distribution income in our ROE calculation. So uh, I think net-net is positive. It's just we, I, I wouldn't be able to take a number specifically to the, uh, the pandemic por portion of it. Just my second question um, is just as we're starting to see more growth in terms of sales of electric vehicles, um, you know, what sort of work or, or what have you done to give yourself comfort around appropriately pricing um, auto insurance policies for EVs to avoid, you know, negative surprises down the road? Yeah, it's interesting, uh, Jeff. So first of all, it's not a big portion of the uh, of the carpool. Uh, I'll just say that. And, and second, there's a very different uh, profile in terms of claims, uh, both frequency and severity, um, within the, the uh, electric vehicle uh, category, uh, where the difference for cheaper electric vehicle uh, is, is quite, not the difference, but the, the patterns are very different for the more, the more expensive electric vehicles. So it's hard to generalize. I'll ask uh, Isabel to share her perspective on that because she's pricing for these differences. Yes. So we, we've talked about in the past our pricing segmentation that is quite precise with machine learning, but also with the data we have internally. So despite the electric vehicles being a small proportion of the pool of vehicles, we're working with our claims colleagues to look at the data we have, and we price each make, model, and year individually, and that includes uh, the electric vehicles as well. So we're able to be very segmented in our pricing to reflect different types of costs we may have for those vehicles, and that's what we've been doing in the past and continuing to do the more we get information and data on those, uh, those vehicles. Okay, thank you. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. 
by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Your next question comes from Michael Phillips of Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead. Thanks. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, the first question is on, on casualty loss trends. I guess, I guess, what are you seeing today there, and what do you think, where, where, do, you, where do you think that's headed um, over the next year or so, um, and, and how does that differ for your U.S. business versus your, 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 your Canadian commercial line casualty business? Yeah, thank you. Um, again, another pattern we've been on for uh, a number a number of years, uh, and uh, I'll I'll ask Darren to share uh, his perspective on that, and then uh, maybe Patrick, you can you can chime in if, uh, if there's anything to add. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I mean, you're right uh, relative to one. This is one that we've been watching for quite some time around social inflation. Um, both in, in Canada and in the U.S. Um, the social inflation uh, is not a new topic for us. Um, it's not um, incrementally increasing. That's not our observation at this point in time. It clearly is more relevant, though, for our U.S. operations than our Canadian operations, where our book in the U.S. is more heavily skewed towards casualty-type exposure. So it's uh, very much relevant to the U.S., so we're watching very carefully. I mean, it exists, it's in place, but uh, nothing of material concern. And in fact, if I look at sort of our loss trends that we have in place at the moment in the U.S. relative to the rate uh, that is flowing through the book, uh, we have a meaningful gap at the moment between our loss trends and our, and our rates that are flowing. So uh, we're quite comfortable from that standpoint. From a Canadian standpoint, obviously, we've been watching this one uh, quite some time. It's obviously been very, very relevant on the personal uh, auto side that we've been fighting, obviously, in terms of longer tail coverage for some time. Uh, obviously, on the commercial side, it's, it's more property-influenced compared to the U.S., um, but nonetheless, uh, we're still watching very, very closely social inflation. But similar to the U.S., um, nothing material, no real sort of net uh, change in the environment uh, of late. But again, I, there, I think the, there we're also uh, still continuing to push quite strong strong rates as well. Um, and then obviously, lastly, on the UK as well too, uh, very, very similar from a Canadian standpoint. Strong rates, uh, watching both property inflation, social inflation, but uh, uh, good margin versus lost trends at the moment. I think on the U.S., the point uh, th there's a few points that that need need to be made. So first of all, uh, the duration of the liabilities in our U.S. book is actually very short. It's less than in the Canadian book. It's a little more than two years. That's the first point. The second point that I would make is when we bought the U.S. business, we've shut down three lines of business you know, in the months following closing. The lines of business that we've shut down are the lines of business that have been most impacted uh, by casualty inflation in the U.S. We, we, saw, uh, we saw that. We had, a, I think, a reasonable read on, on, 
older excellent years development and felt that uh, we couldn't compete in a number of sectors, whether it's healthcare, whether it's architect and engineers programs and so on. And we exited these lines. I would say, you know, where we're, our footprint in the U.S. now actually looks really good, short, short tail. And we have a few lines of business where um, we're going through, you know, a, a curtailing of the of the portfolio lines that are under profitability improvement, and they would be lines that have been more exposed to uh, casualty inflation. But we've been working on these lines for three years, so these would be lines we have not exited, stayed in. We feel we have a good shot at uh, at winning, but uh, we're working hard on the inflation there. Uh, Patrick, do you want to share your perspective from a, a claims perspective? Yeah, very much uh, aligned with what was already shared. Maybe the only additional uh, point I would uh, make is uh, um, we have a competitive advantage in the way we handle casualty claims. Um, we have a team that uh, will reach with the internalization of RSA about 600 uh, lawyers and, and law professionals that handles more than 80% of these claims internally in Canada, and we've started two years ago to uh, internalize uh, a portion of the U.S. as well. So I think that helps us manage these trends, but also understand very well the driving forces and, and where it's happening. Okay, yeah, great. Thank you for those details. Yeah, thank you, guys. Um, second question then would be a little more higher level, kind of industry maybe possible question, but as it relates to you guys. In the past year, we've heard more, certainly in the U.S., of, uh, uh, of a desire for um, OEMs to offer insurance, um, whether it's GM or Tesla or, or whatever else. And how do you think about that? Is that something that you, you see there? Um, and if so, to what extent? And is that more of a threat to you guys or an opportunity in partnerships? Or just how do you think about that trend? You know, Mike, we've been focused on disruption potential for over a decade. Uh, that's a theme that uh, we've been focused on, which has shaped really many of the actions that we're taking today. And our perspective back then was, and it's still very much the case, that disruption will take place at the distribution level, more so than at the manufacturing level. That's our, that's our thesis, at least, or, or that's the basis on which we operate. And I would say OEMs uh, would be potentially one uh, of those elements that could uh, disrupt distribution. You know, have we seen anything concrete, meaningful at this stage? No, but, uh, but we're certainly prepared for that. It's really hard to manufacture a PNC product, quite frankly. Pricing, risk selection, claims management, uh, prevention, and so on is hard to hard to replicate uh, for for players. The OEMs, as you know, um, in particular in the U.S., have been in that business before and largely got out over time. Doesn't mean they can't come back, but uh, it, it's not clear to me that this is the most uh, prevailing threat. But anything that can disrupt this distribution of the product, we're focused on. What have we done about it over the last decades? Well. In retail, we've built uh, the strongest brands in the marketplace in which we operate. We want to make sure that when Canadians think about PNC insurance, the first two brands they think about are Intact Insurance 
and better direct. The second thing we've done is we try to digitize our distribution footprint and our customer experience. As you know, we've, we've, we've invested in designs for many years, seven, eight years, aggressively. Uh, the other element that uh, we've done is we've built our own distribution arm with BrokerLink, which, um, you know, which is north of $3 billion of revenue. We have partnerships with a number of consolidators. It is contributing to our earnings while it's creating strategic optionality, which is really good. Um, and, uh, and, and then invested in ventures as well to make sure that we were in the flow of, dis of uh, disruption. And I think when I, when I put all that together, we remain hyper-vigilant about disruption and distribution, but feel like we've got many toolbox or many tools in the toolbox to deal with that. Now, if you start from the premise that disruption will take place at the distribution level, then as a manufacturer of the product, you want to make sure that you're second to none. And that's why we've, we've invested heavily in um, our predictive power capabilities, in expanding our data set in AI. That's also why we've invested aggressively in the claims uh, operation to make sure that we manage claims ourselves, to make sure that we're deep in the supply chain so that when people want to disrupt distribution, uh, they want to make sure that Intact is on board from a manufacturing point of view. So we're, we're you know, preparing for this. OEM, I think, is just one of uh, potential disruptors in distribution, but we feel that uh, we've created good optionality in the organization and built strong competencies to fight uh, disruption if and when it comes. Charles, thank you very much for that. You're welcome. Your next question comes from Jamie Glowing of National Bank. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Uh, good morning. <clears throat> First question, just uh, morning, in uh, still in personal auto with uh, with uh, driving uh, seeming to begin to normalize and severity a little bit higher. Um, can you talk about the timing? For when you might start to think, or even, uh, or maybe you are in the process of, uh, of filing for, for rate hike approvals in various provinces, can you just sort of talk us through uh, where you are on that uh, on that stage? Yeah, Isabel, why don't you uh, uh, share your perspective on that? Maybe talk a little bit about seasonality as well in uh, in personal automobile, which I think is relevant for people to assess the sort of uh, run rate and, and where this is going. Yes, so as you mentioned, uh, driving is normalizing, uh, but there's still a few things uh, ev con that continue to evolve and, and we're really uh, focusing on following those trends. Uh, frequency remains below historical level because people are still still readjusting their driving habits, and we've been proactive throughout the whole pandemic to follow this and readjust our rating strategy accordingly. So it's not only that we made one, one move in our rates and that we're waiting for the new norm to, to adapt, we've been continuously adapting it throughout the, the situation. So that's maybe one point to clarify. Uh, we also see, as Charles mentioned, seasonality in the auto lines of business that have impacts on frequency. 
we're entering into the the fourth quarter with the the winter period where we we can see spikes in frequency that are related to weather events so uh, just to give you a, a perspective, on Q4, we expect around three points of unfavorable, unfavorable seasonality uh, relative to personal auto lines of business. So that's also something that we'll need to take into account. And a bit like Patrick mentioned, on the severity side, uh, while we've been at this for, for many years now, we also uh, need to make sure that we follow the, the trends and readjust to the new norm that may uh, come out from the pandemic. So all that saying that we've been quite active during the pandemic to adjust our rating strategy to this, we're continuing to be very um, uh, proactive and in communication with regulators on what we see uh, to make sure they are, they are aware of our uh, relief efforts, of our strategy as well, and the gradual approach we want to take going forward to reflect the new normal. So as I said, uh, uh, Jamie, at, at, at the start, you know, we provided a fair bit of relief as a one-time um, relief uh, payment to, to Canadians, done the same thing in SME, Adjusted rates where we felt that uh, driving patterns would be different for an extended period of time, but we've done it in a way where uh, we can react very quickly from a pricing point of view should driving patterns shoot up. Uh, we did not put ourselves in a position whereby you price 12 months out and then three, four, five months into your pricing cycle, driving us shut back up. And uh, regulators, I think, have been, have been constructive in this process, understanding that this environment is very, very, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a new zone. And as such, we've created optionality, but we've given a lot of relief so far, uh, but not all through rates. Some of it, as I said, through, you know, one-shot uh, payments, because we felt rating is, is tricky uh, here because you price for 12 months and the world is changing. Got it, understood. Um, second question is, uh, is on the, the UK uh, performance in this quarter. Um, looks good on the combined ratio, but I, I want to focus in on more on the premium side of, uh, of the equation. Um, looks like flat and personal and reflecting hard markets and commercial. I was just hoping you could Give us a little bit more color and frame how uh, how premiums look this quarter versus uh, versus the the industry uh, growth rates and and then uh, frame some of the dynamics that are at play and how we should expect uh, premiums to evolve in both uh, personal and commercial lines in the UK. Yeah, high level. I mean, look, it is um, it is early, uh, you know, but since closing, what have we done? I've talked uh, earlier in my remarks in terms of putting action plans to improve pricing and risk selection. Okay, so uh, that is critical as far as I'm concerned to create outperformance in the UK. The team has built a lot of good momentum. These results that you're seeing this quarter are not the product of the actions we've put in place this quarter. They're the product of the work of the team over the past few years. Um, and so first point, pricing risk selection improvements. Second point, rationalizing the footprint of the organization. We want to make sure that we play um, 
where we can win, and we want to make sure that we play where the economics are favorable to us. And so there's a number of elements across the platform in both personal and in commercial lines at the moment where we're trimming positions in certain distribution relationships and so on. Uh, and, and then the third element that is coming is the uh, pricing reforms in personal lines in early 22 that one needs to take into account. There's a big dislocation at the industry between new business pricing and renewal pricing, new business pricing being lower than renewal pricing. The regulatory change, which I think is quite good, uh, will level up new business and renewal pricing. This will create, I think, opportunities in the marketplace, but the personalized environment in the UK, in, in certainly in the first part of 2022, will likely be quite dislocated. So when you put all that together, uh, I see a couple of things. In commercial lines, you're in a healthy, hard market environment. We're curtailing our position in certain segments, but I do expect healthy growth in that line of business and, um, and an expansion you know, of, uh, of our margins there in commercial lines. And, um, not inconsistent, I guess, with where we are in the cycle in relationship with the inflation, uh, both in Canada as well as in the U.S. First line is a whole different ball game for the three reasons that I've mentioned. You know, we are uh, curtailing the footprint. Um, we're bringing pricing improvement, and then there are the reforms and the team's uh, perspective, and they've been very disciplined this year. That's why you're not seeing much growth in purse lines. We're just not dancing with the market gyration here. We have our eyes firmly uh, focused on the combined ratio. We have our eyes on creating outperformance. And I do expect that uh, we won't see much growth in purse lines in the near term as, as regulations work through the system and uh, as uh, performance improvement measures roll out in personal lines in the UK. There might be growth opportunities as a result of the reforms, and if there are, we'll be there to capture them. But uh, it, we are in, in a moment where we want to make sure we're positioned to create out performance, and as such, I wouldn't bank on rapid growth in personal lines in the near term. Thank you. Your next question comes from Brian Meredith of UBS Securities. Please go ahead. Yeah, good morning, Charles. Um, morning, a couple Brian. questions here for you. I just want to dig in a little bit more on the um, physical damage severity in personal auto. Um, I appreciate the answer with respect to used car prices up, but you're selling the, the, the scraps, obviously, for more money, so that helps offset it. But that also would imply that parts inflation is, is, is potentially a pressure on severity as well. And are you seeing that from parts inflation as well as other supply chain issues like getting cars fixed and back in the road, additional rental car prices, those things? Are you seeing that? And I guess this, uh, as a follow-on to that, does Intact have things in place to help mitigate that and kind of have an advantage over the industry you know, in, in, in mitigating the severity? Yeah. You know, I think it's really good to go one one layer down, uh, Brian, because you're right. 
there's stuff happening in the supply chain uh, that that is changing uh, the mix uh, a little bit. And I'll let uh, Patrick provide his perspective, you know, labor and the state of of, uh, of the repair industry. And uh, probably worthwhile, Patrick, going back on a number of the measures we put in place two, three years ago to deal with the inflation that we've been focused on in physical damage, just to give a sense to Brian of the advantages that we have from a claims management and a supply chain management point of view. Right. So, um, Brian, from on the parts uh, side in Canada so far, we don't see a ton of disruption in terms of availability of parts. Uh, for, for sure, like many other industries, uh, this industry is facing um, a hard labor market, and uh, but so far it hasn't had a ton of impact uh, on our cost. The frequency overall being lower, uh, and and the way we approach our our um, rely network, so we have good capacity w within our preferred providers. So so that uh, I think is one of the key advantage that we've built over the years. And we have uh, good capacity, not only for current levels of frequency, but uh, even as it returns towards normal. So that's one, I think, uh, key important aspect. Um, on the used uh, car parts, um, there's a portion of the salvage. I focused on, on, on selling the salvage cars for parts. But there's also an auction process where some of these cars are actually bought and repaired because of the demand in the, so it's not only all of it uh, used in part. With regards to some of the other advantages and actions that we, we've taken, uh, a big portion, uh, an important part of what we've done in, in the past two, three years is leveraging uh, our data and deploy it to the front line of claims. So one of the key elements in, in controlling costs in this environment with higher technology, more complex repairs, is to be able to uh, make quick decisions right from the first call or the first notice of loss with our clients in terms of will we repair that car or will we declare it total loss and replace it? Because then you can direct the client more efficiently at the right place, avoid multiple towing costs, storage fees and, and all of these things that also increase the length of time we have to provide a rental. So by leveraging our data in claims um, and the, the, the data lab, we've deployed tools that can quickly identify this. And uh, we've seen savings actually uh, with these actions on the, the rental, the towing, the storage, which are at the end uh, also a significant part of the repair process. Great. Yeah, and I think, makes I think worth, worth uh, also mentioning that, you know, ordering automobile parts is something we've been doing to fully leverage our, our scale uh, over time. We've been doing that for, for many years, but that certainly comes in handy in a world where there are inflationary pressure. 
makes sense. And then my next question, sticking with personal auto, um, 1% organic growth. Um, obviously, there's some headwinds with respect to BC. Um, but I'm just curious, you know, are you are you being more cautious with growth than Canada and personal auto, given the integration of RSA and, and maybe some uncertainty is with respect to claims inflation? You know, why isn't this a time that you're, you're really trying to get some organic growth? Well, yeah, I think that uh, if we could get more organic growth at the conditions we think are right from an adequacy point of view, we would, Brian, you know. No doubt about it. Uh, we're well positioned. We've done a lot of work in automobile insurance for many years. We think that we're priced adequately, and uh, we'd love to grow. I think part of the issue, you know, if I peel that onion, I would say there's not a lot of um, – I don't want to use, use the word traffic because that would be confusing, but shopping is down. Retention is up, hmm. historically high. Shopping is down. Uh, and as such, the cost of generating sales is up uh, meaningfully. Okay, so that's the first thing that one needs to take uh, into account. At least that's how we think about the business. So that's the first, uh, the first point. The second point is that when you price a product, you price 12 months out using you know three year, three to five years of uh, historical data. Right now, how much credibility do you put on the driving patterns you've seen in the last six months? Some people put a fair bit of credibility and took uh, aggressive rate actions. We didn't. We uh, reflected risk. We provided a ton of relief. But we understand that if, if the world changes in three to six months from now uh, and we're pricing 12 months out, we, we have to have some degree of, uh, of caution. And as a result, you know, our, our ability to sell is maybe not as good as it's been historically. So then there's, you put all that together, Brian, there's the cost of generating traffic, there's uh, how competitive uh, one is, and then there's how much you think you should charge for a world that, you know, will gradually return to normal over the pricing period, and you get, you know, a... a, a, a sluggish growth in commercial and personal lines in the near term, let alone the fact that there's not much rates going around. And so, uh, you know, that, that is the issue. If we could grow more in personal automobile, we would because we're comfortable with, with how that business is positioned to perform in the mid to long term. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the dynamics in the marketplace are – are such that it's not easy to grow. Isabel, I don't know if there's anything, any additional color you want to provide here. I think you said it right. I think with the rest momentum and pause, for sure, it's not the main driver of growth these days. I think because of that as well, our retention is holding very strong, but that creates less uh, moments for shopping for customers in the market in general. And maybe I would just add, we also see less new vehicle sales sales versus historical uh, in the last few months. So that's also reducing the shopping moment for customer. Uh, so we believe also it's, it's one uh, driver of uh, why we're seeing less people shopping for insurance than historical. Makes sense. Thank you very much.
Your next question comes from Mario Mandonka of TD Securities. Please go ahead. Good afternoon, Charles. It, it would seem to me that over the next uh, 12, 18 months, a lot's going to change for your company. Uh, but one area in particular that I'm focused on is personal lines in, in the UK, where the change could be the most sort of fundamental. Where, what I'm go- going with uh, is, does does your company, does Intact have to be a personal lines player in the UK? Uh, is there some either regulatory reason or maybe uh, maybe it's relevant because it helps to absorb overall costs in the organization. But do you think Intact needs to be a personal lines player in the UK at all? It's a key strategic question, Mario. You went, you know, straight to to you know what I think is an important uh, question in relationship with the UK. Keep in mind, we're number two in home insurance. We're very strong in pet insurance, and both these lines of business are performing really well. And so I would consider that this is a position of, of strength to a certain extent. We're very small in motor. Keep in mind, we're, uh, you know, uh, I think 17th or 18th, I forget exactly what position we are. Motor is 1% of Intact Financial's revenue base. 1% motor in the UK. And so I think uh, you want to make sure you're, you can win in that segment, um, no doubt about it. But I think there are strengths in personal lines. The, the exercise we're going through with the team right now is how do we position ourselves to win in personal lines in the UK? How do we position ourselves to outperform? You know, can we win? Um, how do we position ourselves to outperform? Pricing, risk selection, claims, a no-brainer. Uh, but then can you outperform and grow is the question. And is outperformance generating adequate return on capital? These are the questions that are on the table. Uh, Mario, we closed the deal in June. We've put in place near-term profitability improvement plan. Auto is 1% of Intact Financial's revenue base. Purse lines is 7% of Intact Financial's uh, revenue base. There are strengths there, but we're actively engaging with the team to make sure that the business in the UK's position, where we can win, where we can outperform, and where, where we can generate a return you know, that compensates for the risk that we're taking. And so I think your question uh, is, is definitely one that, um, that, that is looked into. I do think there's strength, and, uh, and we want to build on that. One sort of related question then. In the UK, uh, is there a bundling dynamic between auto and home that would necessitate keeping an auto business to maintain the strong position you have in, in property insurance? No. No, much less than Canada, in fact. Uh, you know, in Canada, we have uh, far more overlap between uh, personal automobile home insurance. In fact, we have a single product for, uh, or, you know, a single offer for both products uh, in the Canadian marketplace. In the UK, there's a much greater dichotomy is, is our observation between both these products. So I don't, from the basis of customer experience, I don't see the connection uh, there. The question is, you know, 
you need both to have a solid, credible, personalized platform with distributors. I think that is the, the bigger question as opposed to whether customers look for uh, a base. Can you cross-sell? I think you can, but I'm not seeing a ton of evidences uh, that uh, it's been done effectively in that market. Thank you. Appreciate it. Your next question comes from Tom McKinnon of BMO. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, good afternoon. Sort, sort of progressing a little bit on that questioning. Um, uh, what have you learned now? It's been probably like five months since you closed the RSA deal, in particular for the UK and I. What kind of businesses have surprised you either on the upside or the downside? Um, you talk about uh, being uh, more comfortable with your uh, um, RSA accretion uh, targets and more comfortable with achieving your cost synergies targets. Um, to what extent is some of that attributable to uh, um, your outlook on the UK and I? And, uh, um, you know, which businesses are sort of surprising or either on the upside or downside with respect to that? Thanks. Yeah. I'll ask Louis to, uh, to chip in. You know, if I start at a high level, you know, what are we very pleased with uh, from an upside point of view is the quality of the people we have on the ground in the UK. Second to none, there's a lot of strength there. And, um, and we want to we wanna build on that. I think that, you know, I'm impressed um, and thrilled about the opportunity that exists in the mid-sized commercial lines business in the UK, the opportunities that exist in the regions. You know, we built our Canadian business as a very deep local footprint where we work with brokers you know, to own, not own, but have a very deep presence in the small and mid-sized uh, space. You know, we insure one in four businesses in Canada. We understand uh, the regions, we understand the brokers, and we understand the SME space. RSA in the UK, first of all, super strong brand, very well respected. I was with brokers actually last night uh, talking exactly about the competitive set in the UK and the opportunities that exist in midsize. And you know what? I think there's a meaningful commercial lines opportunity. And, um, and the RSA team has a very strong regional franchise, very strong regional platform. And clearly, that is an area of surprise in terms of upside, not so much in terms of performance, because we knew, you know, what the sort of performance we were uh, looking at coming in this transaction, but rather size, size of the opportunity. The areas where that need uh, work, we, we had a really good sense of as well. And I would put them in three buckets. And these are three buckets where we're focused. First, motor. The performance in, uh, uh, in automobile insurance, better referred to as motor in the UK, needs a lot of work and there's a lot of actions uh, focused on that to improve that performance. The second area is at the small end of, uh, of commercial lines. Uh, there's a fair bit of dislocation in the marketplace um, and, uh, and there's work to do on the performance of the very small end of commercial lines. We're focused on, on rationalizing the footprint there 
And the third bucket, which we knew would, would be challenging, uh, but uh, we're focused on rationalizing the footprint there, is that there's a number of distribution relationships in both personal lines and commercial lines where the economics are, are not stacked enough in favor uh, of, of our operations, and we're shrinking the footprint there because uh, we need to be focused uh, as a firm. So these would be the three areas where, you know, I would say upside, but, uh, but work is needed to, uh, to create upside there. And I think there's a big growth opportunity in mid-sized commercial lines in the UK. Um, the specialty lines business, whether it's the London market business, uh, the marine business, and so on, I think the connections that, that we're creating now with North America will give us access to a, a broader pool of customers. And that's why the global SL capabilities, in my mind, is an opportunity. I think this is an area where the competitive set is thin, as far as I'm concerned. The environment or the ecosystem is really conducive to, um, to us stepping up um, our global capabilities, and, and we're focused on that. Uh, the numbers, you know, they're, they're in line with what we thought are better. And so I'll let Louis give his perspective on that. Thanks, Charles. So, um, yes, the numbers are, are better. The, the team in the UK was already on the path of improvement, so we're sort of trying to uh, make sure we keep on that path and make the corrections we think are, are required here. Maybe one area that, that is attracting a bit of attention, too, is the technology uh, you know, in the UK and, and what needs to be done to, to deliver on the outperformance targets we set for ourselves. But if I come back to synergies, the confidence, uh, you know, is really coming from all the markets that we've added to our platform. Uh, and you'll remember that most of the synergies are coming from Canada. So the confidence is both uh, how we're executing in Canada, how we're executing in Europe. Um, and and that's, that drives the comments of, you know, uh, being, uh, feeling confident that we could beat the target of, of 250. And just, you know, we see the execution so far. I talked earlier about having 24 million already earned after four months, run rate at the end of the year at 85 million. It just makes us more confident as we work closer with the teams, both in Canada and in the UK, that those targets are uh, achievable and, and we look, you know, to try to beat them. Yeah, and as a follow-on, I think that 250 doesn't include any kind of loss ratio potential improvements, which you were able to get when you bought one beacon. Is there anything you can share with us, um, just in you know uh, the first four months of RSA, in terms of any kind of loss ratio improvements? So you're right; they are not included in the 250. Um, and I will say, we're uh, this is really what's being done now in terms of putting our our minds together, developing the strategies, and trying to generate. Uh, additional uh, loss ratio improvements. At this point, I, I, I will say I don't think there's a lot of visibility in the uh, very short term, uh, but we certainly think there's going to be some upside in the uh, mid to, to longer term uh, to improve the, uh, the loss ratio. But at this, we're not quantifying that yet. It's uh, still a bit early. Yeah, okay, I think that's exactly right. I think, Tom, the deal was not predicated on loss ratio improvements. And our, and our guidance, you know, is, is on what the deal was predicated on. Now, clearly, we have action plans to um, to improve uh, performance, but uh, you know, we want to make sure that we have good visibility on it before 
before we start uh, putting you know numbers on the table. In the meantime, I think Louis has been clear about the IRR. Now that we see on this uh, on this transaction, this should convey confidence that we're well on our way. Okay, thank you. Your next question comes from Lamar Perso of Comark. Please go ahead. Thank you. So my first question is just continuing along the uh, the discussion on the synergy. So I'm wondering if you can help me understand uh, which geographies are outperforming uh, your expect expectations the most, and that, is there anything you can do to help us uh, ring fence around how much uh, your 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 synergies are expected to come in at? I'll tell you where I'm going with this. Like, if I think back to Louis' comments on 85 million run rate synergies by the end of 2021, it sounds like this outperformance can be pretty substantial, extrapolated over over uh, 36 months. And then, what, also when I think back to the announcement of the deal, I all, it always felt like the assumed synergies, particularly in the UK and I, was uh, relatively conservative in nature. So, so anything you guys can offer on that would be uh, helpful. Thanks. So uh, on the uh, the first part of the question, so we are tracking, I would say, uh, ahead of schedule. Uh, that doesn't mean that the quantum will be, you know, hugely different than the target we set, but the timing might be a bit better than we anticipated. And you know, I, I say we're giving uh, accretion numbers right now uh, that are earlier than what we initially anticipated. You'll remember our guidance was, you know, upper single by 12 months. I think we're there uh, faster, and we're there against a, a strong standalone performance from IFC. So, I think, and, and this drives a bit the perception that you know we, we the IRR is a bit better than we thought at the beginning because we're we're going faster than expected. But I would not necessarily change the targets. It's just the timing at which they'll be uh, they'll be met that I think is going faster than than we had uh, anticipated. In terms of uh, the markets uh, or the geographies where they're being delivered. Uh, I, I would stick to our initial, uh, you know, guidance around three quarters being in Canada and the rest being in the UK. And you have to remember here, we did not have a business in the UK to start with to generate the synergies. So most of the synergies uh, for that part of the uh, the acquisition were uh, sort of head office uh, synergies, corporate or common costs, group costs that we could eliminate because they would become redundant. Uh, but in the operations themselves harder because we didn't have an operation of our own to uh, to blend with. So uh, that's why it was heavily weighted towards uh, towards Canada. If you look at Canada, it's, you know, six points, I would say, of combined ratio uh, when you take the uh, the synergies we're, we're targeting. That is very consistent with the prior big acquisition, which was uh, AXA back in 2011. So it's a similar, uh, similar quantum, if you want, and that's well on its way to, to being realized uh, within the time frame we set for ourselves. Thank you. And then my second question is uh, just on distribution. But uh, again, it continues to be strong and expected. I wonder if you could break down how much of this growth was organic versus uh, M&A. And then uh, more broadly, what factors uh, could cause this growth to slow? Um, so the, the breakdown here just simply said, if, if I take 29%, uh, you know, quarter over quarter uh, improvement, Two-thirds of that is additional variable commissions. So two-thirds is, I would dare say, pretty much organic. 
And then uh, a third uh, is, is recent uh, M&A activity uh, for both our broker-link business as well as our uh, broker financial services uh, uh, business. So the majority of it is, is organic, but there's a fair contribution uh, from M&A. I would say the, uh, the market is fairly active these days. There's a lot of activity going on on the M&A front. So our perception that momentum will continue is supported by both the performance of the business as well as the, uh, the, market, uh, the market environment. Thanks, that's helpful. There are no further questions on the phone line, so I will turn the conference back over to Mr. Ken Anderson for closing remarks. Please go ahead, sir. Well, thanks everyone for joining us today. Following the call, a telephone replay will be available for one week, and the webcast will be archived on our website for one year. A transcript will also be available on our website in the financial reports and filings section. Lastly, our fourth quarter 2021 results are scheduled to be released after market close on Tuesday, February 8th. Thank you again. This concludes the call for today. Ladies and gentlemen, this does conclude the conference call for today. We thank you for participating and ask that you please disconnect your lines. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.